You are listening to a sermon by Pastor Christopher Sally of New Life Christian Fellowship Church. What on earth are we here for? Amen. You may have your seats. Some of y'all said that with a little bit more attitude than was needed, but amen. That's how we are. We, we spice things up. That's our people. That's what we're known for. We keep it spicy. Amen. What on earth are we here for? Part three. Uh, we do have a couple of, uh, oh, I was supposed to, Sister Kelly, who's not here, but, but she's connected to me. She's like, uh, are you going to dismiss the, the junior and the high schoolers? Yes. Those that, uh, junior high and high school age, you can, you can be dismissed. My bad. My bad, Kelly. My bad. <laughs> Amen. I know she's watching. So yeah, we, we uh, let the, the young people go. Um, I'm excited today to continue to talk about this because uh, all the time uh, we want to focus on what's important. And as I told you when we started looking at this in that very first part, we are talking about the kingdom. Amen. The kingdom is coming. Get ready. Amen. Matter of fact, we even talked about the fact that the kingdom of heaven has been inaugurated, but it has not been consummated. And so Jesus came and inaugurated the kingdom and his disciples and other folks thought that he was going to set up the kingdom immediately. They did not appreciate or understand, however, that between the inauguration of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom was going to be this uh, uh, era called the church age. Amen. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16 on Peter's confession on this rock, I will build my church. It's the first time that the, the word church is used. And that church is uh, means those that are called out for the kingdom. So we're the called out ones. And so the, the, the kingdom is bigger than the church. The church is the kingdom people that are called out for the kingdom and the kingdom is 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 the reign and rule of the messianic reign and rule of our lord and savior jesus christ and so he has inaugurated the kingdom in his first coming and he will consummate the kingdom in his second coming he he came in his first coming as the lamb of god he will come back when he uh, consummates the kingdom as the lion of judah amen and so our message should be consistent to everyone around us. We shouldn't have a mixed message. As we said before, we, we often do though. We, we, we give messages to the world from the church and church bodies that there are other things that are really, really important to us, but not the kingdom. But, but we can't be in a place where we're talking about, uh, social, just, you know, socializing amongst one another. We're talking about fashion and we're talking about finding creative ways to keep people out of the kingdom like the Pharisees did, keeping people out with our judgment and our attitudes, with our, our refusal to, to try to, uh, meet folks where they are. Any, any of those other kind of things, we send out those kinds of messages, but the consistent message that I reminded you about that would be on the cover of our magazine if the church had a magazine then every article in the magazine would concentrate on this one thing which is the kingdom of heaven is coming get ready and so we talked a lot the last time about accessing the power 
of the kingdom. Amen. And you access the power of the kingdom because God has given us the keys to the kingdom. Keys uh, are, are reminders to us about access. It's about authority. And those keys are to be used at the discretion and the di- direction of the master. Amen. Because if we, if we try to misuse keys, as I reminded you the last time we were together, if you misuse keys, God can change the locks. Amen. You don't have free access to do whatever you want to do. That's why the, the prayer is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's at the direction and the discretion. Come on, somebody of the, of the master. Amen. And so that's what we are. We're stewards and we're stewards over the kingdom, but we have access and everything that, that he has asked us to do. He has given us the power to do. There is power for us according to Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. And I reminded you the last time there's also power in us. And how do we access that power? We abide in the vine and we obey, abide and obey. That's how we stay in the flow of what God is trying to do. Apart from me, the scripture says in John 15, ye can do what? Nothing. Amen. And so again, abide. And then John 14 and 21, it says, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them. He it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me will be loved of my father. And I too will love him and will manifest myself to him. And so again, we demonstrate our obedience to God, uh, our love for God through our obedience. Amen. So abide and obey. So that's the access, the power of the kingdom. But now we want to turn our attention to living the principles of the kingdom, the principles of the kingdom. I can think of no better passage of scripture to talk about what are the principles of the kingdom than looking at the beatitudes that are uh, encapsulated within Jesus's sermon on the mount. Amen. The Beatitudes are in verses 1 through 12, but but Matthew 5, 6, and 7 uh, are the entirety of Jesus' most famous, uh, 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 most popular, most well-known address, which I love that in verse 28 of chapter 7, it says that when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. And not as their teachers of the law. But he starts out by saying, let me, let me, let everybody sit down on the mountain cried. He went and, oh, excuse me, and sat down. He saw the crowds. He went up on the mountainside and sat down. He did. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying. And so you go through and there are eight beatitudes. We'll probably just cover four of them today. That's why I only read verses one through six. The beatitudes, the attitudes that ought to be. Amen. That's that's really a simple way to think of them. The beatitudes are the attitudes that ought to be in our lives. And there is a there's a definite progression in these verses. They show how the person begins with his or her own sense of self and finally becomes a child of God and a results that then follow. And so the, it talks about these these attitudes. And so we want to talk about the attitudes that ought to be. And I can think of no better way to set up the attitudes that ought to be in looking at Matthew chapter five with looking at what I would describe as the devil's beatitudes. You didn't know he had a list of beatitudes. They're not going to be found in your Bible. But if you 
if you Google them, they'll be on the internet. Amen. Very, very interesting that, that of course it's, 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 it's made up, but it's relevant and it's real. And when you hear them, you'll be like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. So this would be, this would be what the, what the devil would say. This is the attitude I want to see you have. These are the, these are the attitudes that, that ought to be in the lives of Christians because then they will be as effective for the, for the kingdom, his kingdom, and not God's kingdom. So the, the devil's beatitudes, number one, if he had them, it would probably go something like this. Blessed are those who are too tired, too busy, and too distracted to spend an hour once a week with their fellow Christians. They are my best workers. Too tired, too busy and too distracted to spend one hour. Now we do an hour and a half, almost two hours. Okay. So two hours with their fellow Christians. Satan says, I, I really, yeah, I can really get into believers like that. That are too, too busy and too tired and too distracted. Just, just a couple of, let alone, excuse me, let alone in ministry, let alone serving, let alone in Bible study during the week. That sounds like you might be serious. He's just saying baseline. If I can just get them to not even come to church. And there's so many people uh, that we know that we we're, we're always, we're always uh, choosing to, to, to be lazy when it comes to church, but we will press through for everything else. The world is opening back up and we are out and about and doing things, but are we going to get out and about and back to 1645 Wilson? Amen. Number two, beatitude. Blessed are those Christians who wait to be asked and expect to be thanked. I can use them. Now, I don't know if you realize it, but you have a standing invitation. God invites you to join him in his work. Amen. That's one of the seven realities of experiencing God. God is always a work, a work around you and God pursues a, a loving relationship with you. And then, and then God invites you to God speaks and then he invites you to join him in his work. And that invitation for you leads you to a crisis of belief that what requires faith and action, but, and you must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he is doing. And then you come to know God by experiences as, uh, as you, uh, as you, as you do your work and he accomplishes his work through you. Amen. And so again, there's a standing invitation that every believer has to join God in what he is doing. In John 5 and 19, Jesus said, I, I, I only do what I see my father doing. Whatever my father does, that's what I do. We have to have that same mindset. But there are people in church that, that want to wait for you to ask them. And then if they do just one little thing and you forget to say thank you for that one little thing, they're in their feelings. And it's like, these people don't even appreciate me. I was the one that bought that hand sanitizer and I put it right out there at the door. Nobody even said anything. I paid $2 for that hand sanitizer and now nobody said anything. Now my, my feelings are hurt. Satan loves believers that get in their feelings, wait to be asked and always looking to be thanked. Blessed are the touchy. 
who stop going to church. They are my missionaries. Paul wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. He wrote a letter to the church at Corinth. He didn't write a letter to the first Baptist church of Ephesus. And then there was a second Baptist church and a Methodist church and a Presbyterian church and a church of God in Christ. See, if you were at Ephesus and you were at church, you had to work out your problems with the believers at Ephesus. You couldn't just walk across the street and go to another church and take your problems and mess with you. Amen. And so if you're touchy. Back in the day, you just had to be touchy because you had to work your salvation out with fear and trembling among the believers that were in that city. We don't have that same situation. So what happens all the time now is somebody will just be touchy. They'll either not go. They'll leave your church and go to another church or they'll stop going to church altogether. And then when somebody asks them why they don't go to church, that's when the devil will say, great, they're my best missionaries. The people of God are stank. They did this, they did that. I don't like how they get down at church. And then you block other people from coming into the kingdom by being touchy and in your feelings. Blessed are the troublemakers. They shall be called my children. <laughs> you know what a troublemaker loves to do? The troublemakers love to, in the, in the best spirit of the children of Israel, they love to be world class complainers. Can always analyze what's wrong, but never want to be a part of the solution. They can point out every little thing that's wrong at church. Everything you're not doing, everything I'm not doing, everything that is it, it deficient at church and they and they and they not only can analyze it, they'll they'll never solve it, but then they also want to point it out to everybody else and that's what starts to cause the the trouble. We don't need troublemakers. We need troubleshooters. Amen. Those people, you know what a troubleshooter is. A troubleshooter will identify the trouble, but can also help you solve the trouble. Amen. That's what a good wife does for you. You might remember that. That that was one of the four things. A good mate is a, the T in mate was a troubleshooter. Amen. You got a good troubleshooter at your side. That's, that's worth more than gold. Amen. <laughs> we need more troubleshooters in church and less troublemakers. Blessed are those who are bored with the minister's mannerisms and mistakes for they get nothing out of his sermons. Amen. If you spend so much time focused on what I didn't do or it took too long or it took too short, or I moved around too much, whatever it is, I don't know. But, but that's not the right attitude when the word of God is presented to you because the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide asunder soul from spirit, joint from marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So when the word of God is presented and preached, that's what's supposed to be going on, not what, what I did or didn't do or anything like that. Blessed are the complainers. I'm all ears to them. That that really goes with the troublemakers. Troublemakers and complainers go hand in hand. Those that can always analyze but never solve. Blessed is, ooh, blessed is the church member who expects to be invited to his own church. For he is a part of the problem instead of the solution. 
over the years, I've had people do that to me. They'll, 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 they'll set up, they'll set up a test for me that I don't even know about. It's nothing worse than taking a test and not even know you taking a test. I'm going to stay away for a few weeks from church and I'm going to see if he comes after me. I'm going to see if he notices. I'm going to see if he calls. The funny thing is, I, I likely is I will notice and I, I will call because I, I'm a shepherd. That's what shepherds do. But the funny thing is, if you can stay away for three or four or five or six weeks from church, you know what that means? You're not doing anything at church that we need. If Martin Champion is gone from this church for three weeks, this church will fall apart. We won't have nobody in the back. We won't, I mean, there's so much that happens. If Tim is not there, if Jeff is not there, if Robert or, or Ricky or the praise singers, and we got to make all kind of adjustments. We always know when the, when the folks that are involved in ministry are gone. Amen. But if you can leave and be gone all summer, take the summer off and then, then flip back in here in, 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 in September and say, Hey, pastor, how you doing? I'll be happy to see you. But if you can go all summer, that means you're not doing anything. Ministry and pouring in and being a part and don't part of the ministry that you have is presence. Amen. Don't underestimate the power of presence. Your contribution on a Sunday morning is you praising and worshiping the Lord along with all of us. That is still a meaningful contribution. It is you being in a place and in your place to praise and worship and encourage others in the body of Christ is powerful. Don't underestimate the power of presence. And then we can do a little bit more once you're here, but you, those that are, uh, expecting to be invited or invited back, we miss you. Where have you been? And all you're doing is sitting at home waiting for somebody to notice that you're gone. Don't play those games. We, I got enough stuff to do fooling around with you. Okay, now my stuff is coming out. Let me, let me keep going on this list. Blessed are those who gossip, for they shall cause strife and division that pleases me. Blessed are those who are easily offended, for they will soon get angry and quit. I made a suggestion, and they didn't take it. So I'm out. If that's you, the devil is pretty excited about how you get down for church. Blessed are those who do not give their offering to carry on God's work, for they are my helpers. You want to eat, but you don't want to contribute. You know that, don't you have that friend? Every time y'all together, every time y'all together, he don't have no money. He don't want to put in on the bill. The bill comes and then he gets the alligator arms. It's like I can't quite reach the bill. Yeah. Everybody else is reaching for the bill and splitting it up and, and this person is here. That person is irritating. It's no different here. You want to eat, but 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 you don't want to contribute. Or the person you, you you invite them over time and time again and they never bring anything. You like the person that says, Oh, we're getting together. Should I bring anything? And most times a host will tell you. Don't worry about it. We got it. And then sometimes a good person will even say, you know what? But I'll bring some, I'll bring the paper plate. I'll bring something. But the person that never asked to bring anything, give anything after a while, you're like, you don't need to come over here anymore. Maybe that's just my house. 
Blessed is he who professes to love God, but hates his brothers and sisters, for he shall be with me forever. You know what? In first John chapter two, I believe it is. You, you see that when he says anyone who claims to be in the light, but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. You cannot say that you love God and hate your brother and sister at the what same time. But many of us try to pretend that we can have this great relationship with God and have all of these broken relationships around us with family members and friends and others in our circle of influence. It does not work that way. You can't be on here and be off here and still be on. Amen. Blessed are you who, when you read this, think it is about other people and not yourself. I've got you too. That's the last one. It's like shame, shame, all those kind of people. Dear God, like the Pharisee, I'm glad that's not me. As opposed to there, but for the grace of God, go I. Amen. So again, that's just, that's just a little, a little, a little something that, that kind of sets up the correct things. Those are attitudes that should not be things we're familiar with. Amen. Let's, let's not pretend that at some point we haven't been a little touchy. At some point we haven't been in our feelings. At some point we, we haven't been consistent in, in terms of pouring into the church, whether it's with our resources, our time or our talent. Amen. That there've been times where we have prioritized other things outside of the kingdom or outside of what the agenda is for the church. And then we, Know that there are times that we've been lazy or selfish. Amen. Let's get our act together. Amen. Those attitudes should not be. The attitudes that should be are in the Beatitudes. Amen. The attitudes that should be. So let's just look at these, these first four and then we'll, we'll get the rest of them the next time we're together. But the attitudes that ought to be again, understanding this, we're talking about, we need to access the power of the kingdom. Amen. I told you this before so that we can live the principles of the kingdom that we might be able to declare the purpose of the kingdom and then ultimately manifest the what presence of the kingdom. That's where we're going. Those are the four things. That's what on earth we're here for. We are here to manifest the presence of the kingdom. We need to be having, we need to have a consistent message that says the kingdom of heaven is coming, get ready. And then we need to manifest that when it says, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? What does it say? Blessed are the poor in spirit for what? Just read it. I'm talking to you. You, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, amen. Okay. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. Oh my gosh. That That is a the attitude that ought to, to be as it relates to that is has everything, uh, you know, in terms of that principle of living has everything to do with dependence, has everything to do with dependence. Why? Because if you are poor in spirit, you understand this, that we must be empty before we can be full. 
We must be what? Empty before we can be full. It's the opposite. The opposite of this is self-sufficiency. If, if, if our sufficiency is not of ourselves, it is of God. In 2 Corinthians 3 and 5, it says, not, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. If you don't understand that you and we're literally nothing without God. Nothing. And so therefore, when you and I appreciate that we are nothing, that means we're poor in spirit. That means that we're open. That means that we're empty. And we're saying, fill me up, Lord, till I overflow. But God can't fill you up till you overflow all that he wants to pour into you if you don't get some stuff out of your life so he can get some more stuff into your life. Amen. You got to be empty before you can be full. How many people, and I, I do it all the time, I do not go through the drive-thru and get any drink with ice in it. I don't need any ice. I want what I pay for. I'm not paying for ice. They can, they can put, they can give you a cup this big and it'll be this much ice in it. That means it's this much liquid in it. Whatever it is, whatever you order, the lemonade, the Diet Coke, the whatever, you're getting this much. You get that ice out of there, then you'll get your full portion you'll get more and so again that's the same thing god is trying to do with you you got some ice in your cup you got a lot of ice in your cup and if you want to get more of the beverage into your cup you got to get some of the ice out of your cup amen so you scoop all of that out you scoop all of that self out that that self-sufficiency and that self-reliance and that self-determination all of the things that that god does not want he wants you to get away from yourself as soon as you possibly can because you are killing you and the kingdom is not about self-determination the kingdom is about self-denial god said get some stuff out of your cup and then when i pour into you you'll get the full measure of my spirit the full measure of my blessing you'll get the full measure of what i want to do in your life and you won't cut it with that ice amen when you're poor in spirit you know there's nothing that i have that 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 has any worth And I need to get rid of it so that I'm poor in spirit. I don't have a high opinion of myself. I'm thinking of myself correctly, which means I want dependence on God and only God. Without him, I am nothing. In in Luke chapter 18, Jesus talked about this. There were some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. And Jesus told this parable. And I just meant to, two men were in the temple, one to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like these people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other one, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humble, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The tax collector was poor in spirit. The Pharisee was full of himself. And if you're full of yourself, you cannot be full of God. You've got to be empty before you can be full. Dependence. That has everything to do. How should you see yourself? That's what that beatitude, that principle, how, that's that first point. How should you see yourself? You should see yourself as one who is in need of dependence.
blessed are the are those who mourn. Amen. Thank you, Brother Ricky. Only one with me right now. For they will be all right now. There now that's we have four people. That's amen. Amen. So we're we're, we're progressing. Blessed are those that mourn. We're not talking about crying just for crying's sake. It's not it's not crying uh about situations as much. It it's not about this. It's it's about the first one was how should you see yourself? The second one is about how should you see sin? The mourning is about sin. Amen. Not about uh your situation or some other things that may be be going on in in the world even though as as long as they're con- I'm saying connected to understanding our fallen state generally but your fallen state and my fallen state specifically the morning has everything to do with repentance repentance and the repentance their actions that will help us to understand and help you to understand if you're truly mourning over sin, over sin. It's a sincere sorrow for sin, our sins and the sins of others, how careless we are about sin. We excuse it, yet God hates it, and sin breaks God's heart. And beware of the sorrow of the world. I, I love this in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. The apostle Paul says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed. Because godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But Worldly sorrow brings death. It's the difference between in a situation of transgression, the enemy wants you to be shameful and God wants you to be sorrowful. The difference is shame drives you away from God. Sorrow drives you to God. He said, the apostle Paul said, I'm, I'm glad that you were made sorry because that sorrow caused you to repent. That means that you're carrying it the right way. You see the sin in your life and you see the failure that has happened. And, and, and over and over again, we do disappoint the heart of God and we break his heart, but he is looking for us to be sorrowful about it so that it drives us closer to him. He's looking for us to, to have a, if there's in a place of transgression that we carry it like David carried it in Psalms chapter 15. 51. He created me a clean heart, Lord, and renew the right spirit within me. Purge me with hyssop. Wash me that I might be what? Whiter than snow. Uh, 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 have mercy on me, O oh God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done this thing. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David understands that he's a sinner. David understands he was a sinner from, it's, it's congenital. He has a confession about who he is. Then he has this petition before God and then there is this recommitment. Then he says, then I would send, uh, I would show sinners your way and, and, and restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressions your way and sinners will turn back to you. That's how you carry it, beloved, when you mess up. When did he write Psalms 51? 
after he messed up with Bathsheba. How do you know that David understood the depths of what happened? It took him a while. It took the prophet Nathan to confront him and say, you are the man. But when David got it, he got it. And he says, I have sinned. And he penned that song. That's how you carry it when you mourn. That sorrow drove him to repentance and to God. Don't brush sin off like it doesn't matter. You're breaking the heart of God. I'm breaking the heart of God. And if we continue to remember that that's what we're doing, it should motivate us to stop doing it. We knew, we know he offers us forgiveness. We know first John one and nine. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When I was a young boy, eight, nine, ten years old, I came up with this great idea that I was just going to confess all of my sins, past, present, and future, do business with God once, and then just do what I want after that. He's like, that's not how that works. I was like, anything I've ever done, anything I'm doing right now, and anything I'll ever do, just put that all under the blood, and I can go back outside and play. He's like, no, you need to do business with me with some short accounts. And you just can't break my heart past, present, and future and just flit around here and just do what you want to do. I thought I had a good plan, uh, but apparently I did not. And some of us think that we've got a good plan where we can just utilize the forgiveness of God, which is always available to us. But some of us are using it in such a way that we're not making substantive change and we're not changing course. We're actually not repenting. Repenting means to turn away 180 degrees from what you're doing. If you repent, that means I'm going back this way. I'm not continuing on the path I am. There are some things that are bothering us, that beset us, that we do over and over. We're having problems with our thought life and and anger and how we communicate with one another and the things that we say. And God knows that we're frail and we're fragile, but his expectation is that we are going to be about the business of mourning what we do and saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? For the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't, there's some things that I don't do that I want to do. That's what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8. we got to carry it in such a way that it leads us to what? Repentance. Blessed are the who? Meek. For they will inherit the earth. Beloved, meekness is not weakness. Jesus was meek. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto my, your souls. He drove the money changers from the temple. Moses was meek. The scripture says in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3, after uh, Aaron and Miriam were, were pressing him about the, the Cushite woman he married. The sister, the Cushite, Cushite meaning burnt face. Come on, somebody. If you didn't know, now you know. They was on him because he married a black woman. Okay, I digress. Now, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Meekness. Meekness means you understand. You don't always have to speak up. You don't always have to press it all the way because you know that you have an advocate in in God. 
uh, through Jesus Christ and God can and will handle your business. Amen. That's what meekness means. There's a confidence that you have that God has your back. You don't always have to speak. You don't always have to get loud or do whatever. You look at what happened in Numbers chapter 12 when uh, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife. And then it says, at once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So, again, Moses carried it in such a way that he, he felt he, he, he felt sympathy for Aaron, uh, and, and Miriam, cause he's like, y'all getting ready to get in trouble. Because God said, listen, I talk to Moses in a different way than I talk to everybody else. I talk to him face to face cause he's my friend. Okay? You don't mess, you don't mess with my friend. Miriam, you getting ready to catch leprosy. And immediately she did. Look at Numbers chapter 16. Korah, Dathan, and Ibrahim, when they, when they approached, uh, uh, him and they, they held that kind of uprising and they told Moses, you've gone too far. The whole community is holy. Every one of them and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Because Moses and his family, they were the priests, Moses and Aaron. They were the ones that got access to the temple. And when Moses heard this, he fell face down and he let God handle. It. He said, listen, let's, we'll split up in two groups and then we'll see what God will do. And they got burnt up and the earth swallowed them up. And, and Moses was obviously fine, but it broke his heart yet again because he's like, you, you don't understand. I don't, I'm not fighting these battles. Meekness means that I let God handle it. Amen. And between us it, it means how do you see others? How do you see yourself? How do you see sin? How do you see others? You should see others with forbearance. It's about forbearance. You don't always have to press it, beloved. You don't always have to say anything. You could take a pause, take a beat, and see what God directs you to do. Amen. Every Karen... Every Becky does not have to be slapped immediately. They don't. They don't. I know we want to, but sometimes you just need to take a beat and say, how do I see others? And like I said, if, if somebody is acting in a way and you're God's anointed and you're, you're God's, uh, you're set apart for God, they, they, they're, they're in, they're endangering themselves messing with you, not messing with you, messing with you. Amen. And so let's let God handle some things. So again, those that are meek, not weak, because weakness means you can't act. Meekness means that you have the ability to act and choose not to. Meekness means not asserting your own rights, but living for the glory of God. Christians are to show meekness. We are prone to be self-willed, but he wants us to show meekness. Titus 3 and 2, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle towards everyone. That's what we've been called to do. And last but not least for today, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. How do you see God? He is our sustenance. 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 You should have as a Christian an appetite for spiritual things. An appetite. You should hunger and thirst after righteousness. And, and if you ask people what they desire, you'll know what they're like. 
I can tell by your grind what you're after. If all you care about is getting to the next level, every conversation we have will be about work. Every conversation we'll have will be about you trying to expand your platform or, or do something like that. Or I'm trying to get to the next level. I'm trying to do this or that. And you'll pursue it and you'll go after it and you'll go after it hard. Why? Because that's what you hunger and thirst after. But wouldn't it be great if we had some folks that were hungering and thirsting after righteousness? said, I want to be in right relationship with God. I want to be able to represent the kingdom in such a way that when people see me, they see Jesus. I want to be able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I want to hunger and thirst after that. And I tear, I guarantee you, if you start to make that your focus and I make that my focus, we'll look more and more like Jesus and the kingdom will be what it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be about all the other things we're pursuing out in the world and on those worldly platforms. It's supposed to be about hungering and thirsting after righteousness first. Not that we can't grind and hustle because we do, but you know yourself. You know what you're after. And you know what you won't take a a no answer about. Why don't we start taking a no answer about grinding for the kingdom? I can't keep living like this. I got to be better. I got to be a better representative of the kingdom. I got to hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know what Jesus said in John chapter 6? He told them, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were talking about, yeah, we ate bread and our ancestors did in, in the wilderness, that manna. He said, yeah, but I'm, I'm the bread that came down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, hey, give us this bread so that we can have it always. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Hunger and thirsting after Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the bread of life. And if you deal with these questions correctly, we can talk about the next four. And we'll do that the next time we're together. How do you see yourself? Dependence. How do you see sin? Repentance. How do you see, excuse me, others? Forbearance. I want to be in a place where I remember forbearance. And how do you see God? Sustenance. He is my sustenance and I want to hunger and thirst after him and him alone. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. You are listening to a sermon by Pastor Christopher Sally of New Life Christian Fellowship Church. What on earth are we here for? Amen. You may have your seats. Some of y'all said that with a little bit more attitude than was needed, but amen. That's how we are. We, we spice things up. That's our people. That's what we're known for. We keep it spicy. Amen. What on earth are we here for? Part three. Uh, we do have a couple of, uh, oh, I was supposed to, Sister Kelly, who's not here, but, but she's connected to me. She's like, uh, are you going to dismiss the, the junior and the high schoolers? Yes. Those that uh, junior high and high school age, you can, you can be dismissed. My bad. My bad, Kelly. My bad. <laughs> Amen. I know she's watching. So yeah, we, we uh, let the, the young people go. Um, 
I'm excited today to continue to talk about this because uh, all the time uh, we want to focus on what's important. And as I told you, when we started looking at this in that very first part, we are talking about the kingdom. Amen. The kingdom is coming. Get ready. Amen. Matter of fact, we even talked about the fact that the kingdom of heaven has been inaugurated, but it has not been consummated. And so Jesus came and inaugurated the kingdom and his disciples and other folks thought that he was going to set up the kingdom immediately. They did not appreciate or understand, however, that between the inauguration of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom was going to be this uh, uh, era called the church age. Amen. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16 on Peter's confession on this rock, I will build my church. It's the first time that the, the word church is used. And that church is uh, means those that are called out for the kingdom. So we're the called out ones. And so the, the, the kingdom is bigger than the church. The church is the kingdom people that are called out for the kingdom and the kingdom is 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 the reign and rule of the messianic reign and rule of our lord and savior jesus christ and so he has inaugurated the kingdom in his first coming and he will consummate the kingdom in his second coming he he came in his first coming as the lamb of god he will come back when he consummates the kingdom as the lion of judah amen and so our message should be consistent to everyone around us. We shouldn't have a mixed message. As we said before, we, we often do though. We, we, we give messages to the world from the church and church bodies that there are other things that are really, really important to us, but not the kingdom. But, but we can't be in a place where we're talking about, uh, social, just, you know, socializing amongst one another. We're talking about fashion and we're talking about finding creative ways to keep people out of the kingdom like the Pharisees did, keeping people out with our judgment and our attitudes, with our, our, our refusal to, to try to, uh, meet folks where they are. Any, any of those other kind of things. We send out those kinds of messages, but the consistent message that I reminded you about that would be on the cover of our magazine, if the church had a magazine, then every article in the magazine would concentrate on this one thing, which is the kingdom of heaven is coming. Get ready. And so we talked a lot the last time about accessing the power of the kingdom. Amen. And you access the power of the kingdom because God has given us the keys to the kingdom. Keys uh, are, are reminders to us about access. It's about authority. And those keys are to be used at the discretion and the di- direction of the master. Amen. Because if we, if we try to misuse keys, as I reminded you the last time we were together, if you misuse keys, God can change the locks. Amen. You don't have free access to do whatever you want to do. That's why the, the prayer is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's at the direction and the discretion, come on somebody, of the 
of the master. Amen. And so that's what we are. We're stewards and we're stewards over the kingdom, but we have access and everything that, that he has asked us to do. He has given us the power to do. There is power for us according to Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. And I reminded you the last time there's also power in us. And how do we access that power? We abide in the vine and we obey. Abide and obey. That's how we stay in the flow of what God is trying to do. Apart from me, the scripture says in John 15, ye can do what? Nothing. Amen. And so again, abide. And then John 14 and 21, it says, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them. He it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me will be loved of my father. And I too will love him and will manifest myself to him. And so again, we demonstrate our obedience to God, uh, our love for God through our obedience. Amen. So abide and obey. So that's the access, the power of the kingdom. But now we want to turn our attention to living the principles of the kingdom, the principles of the kingdom. I can think of no better passage of scripture to talk about what are the principles of the kingdom than looking at the beatitudes that are uh, encapsulated within Jesus's sermon on the mount. Amen. The Beatitudes are in verses 1 through 12, but but Matthew 5, 6, and 7 uh, are the entirety of Jesus' most famous, or uh, 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 most popular, most well-known address, which I love that in verse 28 of chapter 7, it says that when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. And not as their teachers of the law. But he starts out by saying, let me, let me, let everybody sit down on the mountain crowd. He went, and, oh, excuse me, and sat down. He saw the crowds. He went up on the mountainside and sat down. He did. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying. And so you go through and there are eight beatitudes. We'll probably just cover four of them today. That's why I only read verses one through six. The beatitudes, the attitudes that ought to be. Amen. That's that's really a simple way to think of them. The Beatitudes are the attitudes that ought to be in our lives. And there is a there's a definite progression in these verses. They show how the person begins with his or her own sense of self and finally becomes a child of God and a results that then follow. And so the, it, it talks about these these attitudes. And so we want to talk about the attitudes that ought to be. And I can think of no better way to set up the attitudes that ought to be in looking at Matthew chapter five with looking at what I would describe as the devil's beatitudes. You didn't know he had a list of beatitudes. They're not going to be found in your Bible. But if you if you Google them, they'll be on the Internet. Amen. Very, very interesting that, that of course it's, 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 it's made up, but it's relevant and it's real. And when you hear them, you'll be like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. So this would be, this would be what the, what the devil would say. This is the attitude I want to see you have. These are the, these are the attitudes that, that ought to be in the lives of Christians because then they will be as effective for the, for the kingdom, his kingdom and not God's kingdom. So the, the devil's beatitudes, number one, if he had them, it would probably go something like this. Blessed 
are those who were too tired, too busy, and too distracted to spend an hour once a week with their fellow Christians. They are my best workers. Too tired, too busy, and too distracted to spend one hour. Now, we do an hour and a half, almost two hours, okay? So two hours with their fellow Christians. Satan says, I, I really, yeah, I can really get into believers like that, that are too too busy and too tired and too distracted. Just just a couple of, let alone, excuse me, let alone in ministry, let alone serving, let alone in Bible study during the week. That sounds like you might be serious. He's just saying baseline. If I can just get them to not even come to church, and there's so many people uh, that we know that we we're, we're always we're always uh, choosing to 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 be lazy when it comes to church, but we will press through for everything else. The world is opening back up, and we are out and about and doing things. But are we gonna get out and about and back to 1645 Wilson? Amen. Number two, beatitude. Blessed are those Christians who wait to be asked and expect to be thanked. I can use them. Now, I don't know if you realize it, but you have a standing invitation. God invites you to join him in his work. Amen. That's one of the seven realities of experiencing God. God is always a work at work around you and God pursues a, a loving relationship with you. And then, and then God invites you to God speaks and then he invites you to join him in his work. And that invitation for you leads you to a crisis of belief that what requires faith and action, but, and you must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he is doing. And then you come to know God by experiences as, uh, as you, uh, as you, as you do your work and he accomplishes his work through you. Amen. And so again, there's a standing invitation that every believer has to join God in what he is doing. In John five and 19, Jesus said, I, I, I only do what I see my father doing. Whatever my father does, that's what I do. We have to have that same mindset, but there are people in church that, that want to wait for you to ask them. And then if they do just one little thing, and you forget to say thank you for that one little thing, they in their feelings. And it's like, these people don't even appreciate me. I was the one that bought that hand sanitizer, and I put it right out there at the door. Nobody even said anything. I paid $2 for that hand sanitizer, and now nobody said anything. Now my, my feelings are hurt. Satan loves believers that get in their feelings Wait to be asked and always looking to be thanked. Blessed are the touchy who stop going to church. They are my missionaries. Paul wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. He wrote a letter to the church at Corinth. He didn't write a letter to the first Baptist church of Ephesus. And then there was a second Baptist church and a Methodist church and a Presbyterian church and a church of God in Christ. See, if you were at Ephesus and you were at church, you had to work out your problems with the believers at Ephesus. You couldn't just walk across the street and go to another church and take your problems and mess with you. Amen. And so if you're touchy, 
Back in the day, you just had to be touchy because you had to work your salvation out with fear and trembling among the believers that were in that city. We don't have that same situation. So what happens all the time now is somebody will just be touchy. They'll either not go, they'll leave your church and go to another church or they'll stop going to church altogether. And then when somebody asks them why they don't go to church, that's when the devil will say, great, they're my best missionaries. The people of God are stank. They did this, they did that. I don't like how they get down at church. And then you block other people from coming into the kingdom by being touchy and in your feelings. Blessed are the troublemakers. They shall be called my children. (laughs) You know what a troublemaker loves to do? The troublemakers love to, in in the best spirit of the children of Israel, they love to be world class complainers. Can always analyze what's wrong, but never want to be a part of the solution. They can point out every little thing that's wrong at church. Everything you're not doing, everything I'm not doing, everything that is it, it deficient at church and they and they and they not only can analyze it, they'll they'll never solve it, but then they also want to point it out to everybody else and that's what starts to cause the the trouble. We don't need troublemakers. We need troubleshooters. Amen. Those people, you know what a troubleshooter is. A troubleshooter will identify the trouble, but can also help you solve the trouble. Amen. That's what a good wife does for you. You might remember that. That that was one of the four things. A good mate is a, the T in mate was a troubleshooter. Amen. You got a good troubleshooter at your side. That's, that's worth more than gold. Amen. (laughs) We need more troubleshooters in church and less troublemakers. Blessed are those who are bored with the minister's mannerisms and mistakes for they get nothing out of his sermons. Amen. If you spend so much time focused on what I didn't do or it took too long or took too short, I moved around too much, whatever it is, I don't know. But, but that's not the right attitude when the word of God is presented to you because the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide asunder soul from spirit, joint from marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So when the word of God is presented and preached, that's what's supposed to be going on, not what, what I did or didn't do or anything like that. Blessed are the complainers. I'm all ears to them. That that really goes with the troublemakers. Troublemakers and complainers go hand in hand. Those that can always analyze but never solve. Blessed is, blessed is the church member who expects to be invited to his own church. For he is a part of the problem instead of the solution. Over the years, I've had people do that to me. They'll 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 set up. They'll set up a test for me that I don't even know about. It's nothing worse than taking a test and not even know you taking a test. I'm going to stay away for a few weeks from church, and I'm going to see if he comes after me. I'm going to see if he notices. I'm going to see if he calls. The funny thing is, I, I likely is I will notice, and I, I will call because I, I'm a shepherd. That's what shepherds do. But the funny thing is, if you can stay away for three or four or five or six weeks from church, you know what that means? You're not doing anything at church that we need. 
if Martin Champion is gone from this church for three weeks, this church will fall apart. We won't have nobody in the back. We won't, I mean, there's so much that happen. If Tim is not there, if Jeff is not there, if Robert or, or Ricky or the praise singers, and we got to make all kind of adjustments. We always know when the, when the folks that are involved in ministry are gone. Amen. But if you can leave and be gone all summer, take the summer off and then, then flip back in here in, in, in September and say, Hey, pastor, how you doing? I'll be happy to see you. But if you can go all summer, that means you're not doing anything. Ministry and pouring in and being a part and don't part of the ministry that you have is presence. Amen. Don't underestimate the power of presence. Your contribution on a Sunday morning is you praising and worshiping the Lord along with all of us. That is still a meaningful contribution. It is you being in a place and in your place to praise and worship and encourage others in the body of Christ is powerful. Don't underestimate the power of presence. And then we can do a little bit more once you're here, but you, those that are, uh, expecting to be invited or invited back. We miss you. Where have you been? And all you're doing is sitting at home waiting for somebody to notice that you're gone. Don't play those games. We, I got enough stuff to do fooling around with you. Okay. Now my stuff is coming out. Let me, let me keep going on this list. Blessed are those who gossip for they shall cause strife and division that pleases me. Blessed are those who are easily offended for they will soon get angry and quit. I made a suggestion and they didn't take it. So I'm out. If that's you, the devil is pretty excited about how you get down for church. Blessed are those who do not give their offering to carry on God's work, for they are my helpers. You want to eat, but you don't want to contribute. You know that, don't you have that friend that every time y'all together, every time y'all together, he don't have no money. He don't want to put in on the bill. The bill comes and then he gets the alligator arms. It's like, I can't quite reach the bill. Yeah. Everybody else is reaching for the bill and splitting it up. And, and this person is here. That person is irritating. It's no different here. You want to eat, but, but, but you don't want to contribute. Or the person, you, you, you invite them over time and time again and they never bring anything. You like the person that says, Oh, we're getting together. Should I bring anything? And most times a host will tell you, don't worry about it. We got it. And then sometimes a good person will even say, you know what? But I'll bring some, I'll bring the paper plate. I'll bring something. But the person that never asked to bring anything, give anything after a while, you're like, you don't need to come over here anymore. Maybe that's just my house. Blessed is he who professes to love God, but hates his brothers and sisters. For he shall be with me forever. You know what? In First John chapter 2, I believe it is, you, you see that when he says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. You cannot say that you love God and hate your brother and sister at the what? Same time. But many of us try to 
pretend that we can have this great relationship with God and have all of these broken relationships around us with family members and friends and others in our circle of influence. It does not work that way. You can't be on here and be off here and still be on. Amen. Blessed are you who, when you read this, think it is about other people and not yourself. I've got you too. That's the last one. It's like shame, shame, all those kind of people. Dear God. Like the Pharisee, I'm glad that's not me. As opposed to there, but for the grace of God, go I. Amen. So again, that's just, that's just a little, a little, a little something that, that kind of sets up the correct things. Those are attitudes that should not be things we're familiar with. Amen. Let's, let's not pretend that at some point we haven't been a little touchy. At some point we haven't been in our feelings. At some point we, we haven't been consistent in, in terms of pouring into the church, whether it's with our resources, our time or our talent. Amen. That there have been times where we have prioritized other things outside of the kingdom or outside of what the agenda is for the church. And then we, know that there are times that we've been lazy or selfish. Amen. Let's get our act together. Amen. Those attitudes should not be. The attitudes that should be are in the beatitudes. Amen. The attitudes that should be. So let's just look at these, these first four and then we'll, we'll get the rest of them the next time we're together. But the attitudes that ought to be again, understanding this, we're talking about, we need to access the power of the kingdom. Amen. I told you this before so that we can live the principles of the kingdom that we might be able to declare the purpose of the kingdom and then ultimately manifest the what presence of the kingdom. That's where we're going. Those are the four things. That's what on earth we're here for. We are here to manifest the presence of the kingdom. We need to be having, we need to have a consistent message that says the kingdom of heaven is coming, get ready. And then we need to manifest that when it says, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? What does it say? Blessed are the poor in spirit for what? Just read it. I'm talking to you. You, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, amen. Okay. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. Oh my gosh. That That is a the attitude that ought to, to be as it relates to that is has everything, uh, you know, in terms of that principle of living has everything to do with dependence, has everything to do with dependence. Why? Because if you are poor in spirit, you understand this, that we must be empty before we can be full. We must be what? Empty before we can be full. It's the opposite. The opposite of this is self-sufficiency. If, if, if our sufficiency is not of ourselves, it is of God. In second Corinthians three and five, it says not, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. If you don't understand that you and we're literally nothing without God, nothing. 
And so therefore, when you and I appreciate that we are nothing, that means we're poor in spirit. That means that we're open. That means that we're empty. And we're saying, fill me up, Lord, till I overflow. But God can't fill you up till you overflow all that he wants to pour into you if you don't get some stuff out of your life so he can get some more stuff into your life. Amen. You got to be empty before you can be full. How many people, and I, not, I do it all the time, I do not go through the drive-thru and get any drink with ice in it. I don't need any ice. I want what I pay for. I'm not paying for ice. They can, they can put, they can give you a cup this big and it'll be this much ice in it. That means it's this much liquid in it. Whatever it is, whatever you order, the lemonade, the Diet Coke, the whatever, you're getting this much. You get that ice out of there, then you'll get your full portion. You'll get more. And so again, that's the same thing God is trying to do with you. You got some ice in your cup. You got a lot of ice in your cup. And if you want to get more of the beverage into your cup, you got to get some of the ice out of your cup. Amen. So you scoop all of that out. You scoop all of that self out, that that self-sufficiency and that self-reliance and that self-determination, all of the things that, that God does not want. He wants you to get away from yourself as soon as you possibly can because you are killing you. And the kingdom is not about self-determination. The kingdom is about self-denial. God said, get some stuff out of your cup, and then when I pour into you, you'll get the full measure of my spirit, the full measure of my blessing. You'll get the full measure of what I want to do in your life, and you won't cut it with that ice. Amen. When you're poor in spirit, you know there's nothing that I have that that, that has any worth. And I need to get rid of it so that I'm poor in spirit. I don't have a high opinion of myself. I'm thinking of myself correctly, which means I want dependence on God and only God. Without him, I am nothing. In in Luke chapter 18, Jesus talked about this. There were some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. And Jesus told this parable. And I just meant to, two men were in the temple, one to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like these people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other one, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humble, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The tax collector was poor in spirit. The Pharisee was full of himself. And if you're full of yourself, you cannot be full of God. You've got to be empty before you can be full. Dependence. That has everything to do. How should you see yourself? That's what that beatitude, that principle, that's that first point. How should you see yourself? You should see yourself as one who is in need of dependence. Blessed are the, are those who mourn. Amen. Thank you, brother Ricky. Only one with me right now. For they will be all right, now there, now that's, we have four people. That's amen, amen. So we're, we're, we're progressing. Blessed are those that mourn. We're not talking about crying just for crying's sake. It's not, it's not 
crying uh, about situations as much. It, it's not about this. It's it's about the first one was how should you see yourself. The second one is about how should you see sin. The morning is about sin. Amen. Not about uh, your situation or some other things that may be, be going on in, in the world, even though as, as long as they're, con- I'm saying connected to understanding our fallen state generally, but your fallen state and my fallen state specifically, the morning has everything to do with repentance. Repentance. And the repentance, their actions that will Help us to understand or help you to understand if you're truly mourning over sin, over sin. It's a sincere sorrow for sin, our sins and the sins of others. How careless we are about sin. We excuse it, yet God hates it and sin breaks God's heart. And beware of the sorrow of the world. I, I love this in Second Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. The Apostle Paul says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed. Because godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death it's the difference between in a situation of transgression the enemy wants you to be shameful and god wants you to be sorrowful the difference is shame drives you away from god sorrow drives you to god he said, the apostle Paul said, I'm, I'm glad that you were made sorry because that sorrow caused you to repent. That means that you're carrying it the right way. You see the sin in your life and you see the failure that has happened. And, and, and over and over again, we do disappoint the heart of God and we break his heart, but he is looking for us to be sorrowful about it so that it drives us closer to him. He's looking for us to, to have a, if there's in a place of transgression that we carry it like David carried it in Psalms chapter 15. 51. He created me a clean heart, Lord, and renew the right spirit within me. Purge me with hyssop. Wash me that I might be what? Whiter than snow. Uh, 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 have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done this thing. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David understands that he's a sinner. David understands he was a sinner from, it's, it's congenital. He has a confession about who he is. Then he has this petition before God and then there is this recommitment. Then he says, then I will send, uh, I will show sinners your way and, and, and restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressions your way and sinners will turn back to you. That's how you carry it, beloved, when you mess up. When did he write Psalms 51? After he messed up with Bathsheba. How do you know that David understood the depths of what happened? It took him a while. It took the prophet Nathan to confront him and say, you are the man. But when David got it, he got it. And he says, I have sinned. And he penned that song. That's how you carry it when you mourn. That sorrow drove him to repentance and to God. Don't. 
brush sin off like it doesn't matter. You're breaking the heart of God. I'm breaking the heart of God. And if we continue to remember that that's what we're doing, it should motivate us to stop doing it. We knew, we know he offers us forgiveness. We know first John one and nine. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When I was a young boy, eight, nine, ten years old, I came up with this great idea that I was just going to confess all of my sins, past, present, and future, do business with God once, and then just do what I want after that. He's like, that's not how that works. I was like, anything I've ever done, anything I'm doing right now, and anything I'll ever do, just put that all under the blood, and I can go back outside and play. He's like, no, you need to do business with me with some short accounts. And you just can't break my heart past, present, and future and just flit around here and just do what you want to do. I thought I had a good plan, uh, but apparently I did not. And some of us think that we've got a good plan where we can just utilize the forgiveness of God, which is always available to us. But we, some of us are using it in such a way that we're not making substantive change and we're not changing course. We're actually not repenting. Repenting means to turn away 180 degrees from what you're doing. If you repent, that means I'm going back this way. I'm not continuing on the path I am. There are some things that are bothering us, that beset us, that we do over and over. We're having problems with our thought life and, and anger and how we communicate with one another and the things that we say. And God knows that we're frail and we're fragile, but his expectation is that we are going to be about the business of mourning what we do and saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? For the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't, there's some things that I don't do that I want to do. That's what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8. we got to carry it in such a way that it leads us to what? Repentance. Blessed are the who? Meek. For they will inherit the earth. Beloved, meekness is not weakness. Jesus was meek. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto my, your souls. He drove the money changers from the temple. Moses was meek. The scripture says in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3, after uh, Aaron and Miriam were pressing him about the, the Cushite woman he married. The sister, the Cushite, Cushite meaning burnt face. Come on, somebody. If you didn't know, now you know. They was on him because he married a black woman. Okay, I digress. Now, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Meekness. Meekness means you understand. You don't always have to speak up. You don't always have to press it all the way because you know that you have an advocate in in God uh, through Jesus Christ. And God can and will handle your business. Amen. That's what meekness means. There's a confidence that you have that God has your back. You don't always have to speak. You don't always have to get loud or do whatever. You look at what happened in Numbers chapter 12 when uh, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife. And then 
it says, at once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So again, Moses carried it in such a way that he, he felt, he, he, he felt sympathy for Aaron, uh, and, and Miriam, cause he's like, y'all getting ready to get in trouble. Because God said, listen, I talk to Moses in a different way than I talk to everybody else. I talk to him face to face cause he's my friend. Okay? You don't mess, you don't mess with my friend. Miriam, you're getting ready to catch leprosy. And immediately she did. Look at Numbers chapter 16. Korah, Dathan, and Ibrahim, when they, when they approached, uh, uh, him and they, they held that kind of uprising and they told Moses, you've gone too far. The whole community is holy. Every one of them and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Because Moses and his family, they were the priests, Moses and Aaron. They were the ones that got access to the temple. And when Moses heard this, he fell face down and he let God handle it. He said, let's, let's, we'll split up in two groups and then we'll see what God will do. And they got burnt up and the earth swallowed them up. And, and Moses was obviously fine, but it broke his heart yet again because he's like, you, you don't understand. I don't, I'm not fighting these battles. Meekness means that I let God handle it. Amen. And between us it, it means how do you see others? How do you see yourself? How do you see sin? How do you see others? You should see others with forbearance. It's about forbearance. You don't always have to press it, beloved. You don't always have to say anything. You could take a pause, take a beat, and see what God directs you to do. Amen. Every Karen... Every Becky does not have to be slapped immediately. They don't. They don't. I know we want to, but sometimes you just need to take a beat and say, how do I see others? And like I said, if, if somebody is acting in a way and you're God's anointed and you're, you're God's, uh, you're set apart for God, they, they, they're, they're in, they're endangering themselves messing with you, not messing with you, messing with you. Amen. And so let's let God handle some things. So again, those that are meek, not weak, because weakness means you can't act. Meekness means that you have the ability to act and choose not to. Meekness means not asserting your own rights, but living for the glory of God. Christians are to show meekness. We are prone to be self-willed, but he wants us to show meekness. Titus 3 and 2, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle towards everyone. That's what we've been called to do. And last but not least for today, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. How do you see God? He is our sustenance. 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 You should have as a Christian an appetite for spiritual things. An appetite. You should hunger and thirst after righteousness. And, and if you ask people what they desire, you'll know what they're like. I can tell by your grind what you're after. If all you care about is getting to the next level, every conversation we have will be about work. Every conversation we'll have will be about you trying to expand your platform or, or do something like that. Or I'm trying to get to the next level. I'm trying to 
do this or that. And you'll pursue it and you'll go after it and you'll go after it hard. Why? Because that's what you hunger and thirst after. But wouldn't it be great if we had some folks that were hungering and thirsting after righteousness? He said, I want to be in right relationship with God. I want to be able to represent the kingdom in such a way that when people see me, they see Jesus. I want to be able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I want to hunger and thirst after that. And I tear, I guarantee if you start to make that your focus and I make that my focus, we'll look more and more like Jesus and the kingdom will be what it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be about all the other things we're pursuing out in the world and on those worldly platforms. It's supposed to be about hungering and thirsting after righteousness first. Not that we can't grind and hustle because we do, but you know yourself. You know what you're after. And you know what you won't take a a no answer about. Why don't we start taking a no answer about grinding for the kingdom? I can't keep living like this. I got to be better. I got to be a better representative of the kingdom. I got to hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know what Jesus said in John chapter 6? He told them, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were talking about, yeah, we ate bread and our ancestors did in, in the wilderness, that manna. He said, yeah, but I'm, I'm the bread that came down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, hey, give us this bread so that we can have it always. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Hunger and thirsting after Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the bread of life. And if you deal with these questions correctly, we can talk about the next four. And we'll do that the next time we're together. How do you see yourself? Dependence. How do you see sin? Repentance. How do you see excuse me, others, forbearance. I want to be in a place where I remember forbearance. And how do you see God? Sustenance. He is my sustenance, and I want to hunger and thirst after him and him alone. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you. We praise you.